Um, but yeah, it's great to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, just a privilege to teach. Um, this is my second time teaching in Titus, and uh, both times preparing for the message is really a blessing and sanctifying, so I hope that you, you're um, half as blessed as I was just in studying this text this morning as I teach through it. And um, we've been in Titus all summer, as Rich said, and we're in chapter three now. We finished up chapter two last week, so we're starting our, our last chapter in Titus, which is bittersweet. It's been a good study. It's been great to hear from everybody. Um, so that being said, though, we're going to be in the first two verses of Titus chapter 3. And, and as we get into it, I, I do want to take a moment to consider context. Um, I taught in Titus 1 several weeks ago now. And so for my own benefit, and, and I know for yours as well, it's helpful just to kind of look at some of the themes and context as we get back into Titus this morning, because as you'll see, um, by the end of this morning, it, the book all just flows so well together. I'm sure you've noticed that um, as, we've, as we've worked through it the last several Sundays. But I want to start by reading um, Titus chapter 3, so let's turn there if you haven't already, and just go ahead and read the first, first eight verses in chapter 3. So follow along with me. That's Titus 3, starting in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So what we've been seeing in Titus is, is a lot of encouragement to do good works as a result of our salvation. In the light of their conversions, they're called to live different lives, the Christians in Crete and, and Christians today, from the pagans that they live among. And in chapter 2, Paul is telling groups of people within the church how to live together. So we saw older men and younger men, older women and younger women, uh, slaves and masters, and, and they're, they're all told to live in a certain light um, as they've been saved by the gospel. Paul instructs each of these groups to live like this because the motivation is here in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives at the present age. And then as we get into chapter 3, we know that this type of living is not confined to the walls of the church. Paul instructs us how to live with the world, how to live among the pagans, and specifically in regards to the governing authorities in verse 1. Similar to chapter 2, after Paul tells his readers to be submissive to the government, he goes on to tell us why, and it has to do, again, with being saved. We're no longer to live in darkness. 
because we are saved. Because Christ saved us, we act accordingly. And verse 8 tells us to devote ourselves to good works and that these good works are profitable and excellent. And we know we don't just live godly just to live godly. Paul, not just in Titus, but in all of his epistles, is constantly hinting at this evangelism. There's an evangelism undercurrent whenever Paul is talking about these good works. We are to live in a way that is different from the world, that is like Christ, so that we can point people to Christ. Remember Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Turn there with me, if you will. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father that is in heaven. Doesn't that sound like Titus? There's this constant temptation and pull to be relevant and to sound like the world and to look like the world. And we make these little compromises trying to, trying to do God a favor. And at the end of the day, it's just hypocrisy. And the, t- the temptation is constant, so we need constant reminders. And that is what we'll get this morning from our text. Reminders from Paul about how to live in a pagan world. All right, so big picture, Titus chapter 1. Uh, Titus has work to do. He's establishing elders, giving the qualifications of those elders, and then um, getting those elders in place so they can remove the false teachers. And then chapter 2, we see fellow believers uh, how to live with one another in the church in light of the gospel. And then finally, chapter 3, how to live with the world in light of the gospel. And then he closes out the letter. Let's read, um, again, chapter 3, just verses 1 and 2 now. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Paul starts chapter 3 with, remind them. And it's really, as we'll see, it's a reminder to be salty and to, sh- and to have light. But have you ever needed a reminder? Of course you have. We all need reminders. And it's, it's like we know how to do something, but if we don't practice it or are constantly reminded, we don't necessarily forget the said truth or task. Um, but we lose sight of the behavior-changing nuances that matter. I remember several years ago, I ran the Virginia 10-miler, and, and recently I went back to run the course. And I remember the course, the twists and the turns, and, and how the course goes, but I had forgotten how technical the course is and how challenging uh, maintaining a certain time would be. I had forgotten what it is to actually run the course. And despite knowing the layout... And knowing that I'd done it before, I needed a reminding about the finer, finer points. And uh, as I was thinking about other reminders, I, I thought about Christmas, honestly. Um, every Christmas or every December, we get a reminder, and I hope it's a reminder to you guys too, and it's not drowned out by the commercialism. 
But every Christmas, despite how familiar I think I am with the Christmas story, it never fails at some point during the Christmas season. I'm struck by some truth, some verse, a reminder as I'm reading through the story. And it's extremely helpful and, and refreshing. And we're just thankful that the Spirit works that way. So we need to be reminded of many things. And in Titus 3, we see it's not a command but a reminder because these are things that we should already know. Paul's giving a number of reminders to the church in Crete, seven reminders of how to be lights in the world. And these reminders are all about doing what is good in context of a general culture. All right, so chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Paul gives seven reminders of how to live in an unsaved world. All right, seven reminders of how to live in an unsaved world. Paul's also reminding them to be ready for every good work. And we know by now that the book of Titus is, uh, is filled with the idea of being ready for every good work. But Paul's about to get a number of reminders, and that's where we're at this morning, verses 1 and 2. Paul is specifically reminding them to be submissive to governing authorities. And before we get into to verse 1 specifically, I do want to think about, talk about historical context here, because I think that will be very helpful to understand the verse and how it applies to us. So who are the governing authorities that Paul is writing about? At the time Paul is writing this letter, we know that Rome is ruling most of the free world, to include Crete, and at this time specifically, Nero is the Caesar, and Nero is, is arguably one of the most infamous men who's ever lived. I'm sure everyone in the room has at least heard his name. And in 64 AD, which is, by the way, about the same time that Titus is written, a massive fire raged in Rome for about seven days, which most historians agree that Nero himself started. Uh, like I said, it was out of control for about seven days, and most of Rome was affected by it. And, and during this fire is when Nero famously plays his fiddle as, as Rome burns, as you've probably heard the story. But after the fire and the fiddling, Nero famously blames the Christians for the fire. And a massive persecution begins. Roman, his, Roman historian Tacitus wrote, Therefore, to stop the rumor that he has started the fire, that's Nero, he falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures the persons commonly called Christians. Out of paranoia, Nero is also known for murdering his own mother and his first wife. I could go on about Nero and all the other Caesars, but you get the point. <clears throat> Nero didn't just raise taxes on tea, and this is the context in which Paul writes, remind them to be submissive. We also know that Paul has a number of interactions with the Romans by now, and in the future for that matter, but including being under house arrest before he writes this letter. So this is challenging to Paul and his audience, just like this is a challenging text uh, for us. And I do want to take a moment uh, just to pivot a little bit. We were talking about ancient history, and I want to talk about modern history now, too, and talk about that context. If you're anything like me at first read, this is a challenging and, and convicting text uh, Clay and I have had a number of conversations about politics, and I suspect he gave me this passage because he knew preparing for it would just eat me up. Um, so I'm a very political person, and um, I, think, I think we're all political people in this day and age and, and just living here. It's, it's all around us. And despite the good times our country has been blessed with and is continually blessed with, we too live in our own pagan society. 
And with everything we know about our own history, it makes the application of a text like this, it can be challenging. Some would say that rebellion is in our blood. We just celebrated the 4th of July this month, as we do every year, and rightly so. Uh, The state of Virginia's motto is Six Semper Tyrannis, thus unto tyrants or or death to tyrants. Uh, Politics is raging all around us, 24-7, 365. There's always something to take a side on, always something to debate about. And it's no secret that passages like this in Romans 13 and other passages are heavily discussed and contested. I think pastors all over the world just spent 2020 and this year wrestling with texts like this in light of COVID-19 and churches being told to close and various other mandates. So all that to say, this is nothing new. In fact, the political scene for Christians in the time of Paul was much worse. So I know reading a passage like this can be challenging because immediately a number of questions and scenarios can flood our minds, but Focus with me this morning because a text, this text is not a burden. In fact, this text is a reminder, a needed reminder, and it points back to the gospel. Our civic behavior is not to be a stumbling block to the gospel. No political party or system will carry or proclaim the gospel. That's the job of the church. And if a political system or party tries to, it will most certainly end in disaster. We submit to the governing authorities to demonstrate our faith in God's sovereignty. And we demonstrate to the world, regardless of who on earth is in charge or what they were doing, we will be doing the same thing, and that is preaching the gospel. Our humble submission to our earthly authorities is just a reflection of that, as we see in the rest of chapter 3. So that's some context, some ancient context, some modern context in light of this passage And we're going to work through a number of, not just submitting to the government, a number of items here. We're going to work through being obedient as well, ready for every good work, speaking evil of no one, avoiding quarreling, being gentle, and showing perfect courtesy to all people. All right, but let's let's talk about being submissive to the government. Verse 1. So when you submit, you are obeying or yielding to. And this idea is all throughout Titus and the New Testament. We see wives submit to husbands, slaves submit to masters, Church members submit to elders, children to parents, and here, citizens or Christians, citizen, Christian citizens to the governing authorities. The idea of that is that our Creator in His perfect wisdom has created levels of authority to maintain God-honoring order. And Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Or 1 Peter 2.13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. I remember after Trump was elected, you would hear people say things like, not my president. Um, And even now, after Biden has been elected, you hear similar things. Um, I saw a bumper sticker the other day that said, Biden is not my president. And that's not being submissive. And I know it's never just black and white. There's always some extra layer to wade through or think through or even an excuse, right? Was the election fair? Or that president is a disgrace. I don't want anything to do with him or her. I refuse to submit. But again, remember our context. Rome is ruling Israel. And I was just trying to imagine that in light of our own situation and trying to think through, like, what if, what if China just conquered the U.S. completely? 
and was ruling with an iron fist and was taxing us with a new currency and sending that money back to Beijing to build up their army even stronger. Paul says, submit to the Romans. Submission is tough and is contrary to the logic of this world. The world is desperate to get their man or woman in office because if they don't, things get hopeless for them. And whether on the left or the right, they want to drag the church with them. But the Christian is called to a different response because we have a greater calling in a sovereign God. God doesn't get nervous about politics. God's not sitting in heaven, wringing his hands, thinking there may have been voter fraud. This ruins everything. Or not another socialist party. Don't these people know that I'm a capitalist? That's not our God. And it doesn't mean that God delights in everything that goes on in our government. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that God delights in everything that goes on in government. And by all means, we must vote and be involved and use our rights to try and stave off evil policies. But ultimately, when the government makes a move, God calls us to submit and trust him. Now, I understand there's there's probably a few patriots in here like myself who are thinking that our government is of the people, for the people, and by the people, and governing officials are bound by the Constitution. So if they go outside the bounds of the Constitution, are we really submitting to the government? And it's challenging. And I understand there may come a time when we have to do some critical thinking depending on what happens with our government in the future. Think of Christians in Nazi Germany. But again, remember the context of this text and the fact that Paul doesn't give us any qualifiers. He says, submit. And the harder it is to submit, the greater witness we have. Remember that. Remember Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And I think we know these things, but we don't always act like we know them. Just look at social media. And therein lies the problem, because the world is watching. And this is why Paul is reminding us. So easily we are seduced by the world, the way of the world, and in a moment our light is suddenly dimmed or covered in how we respond. In these moments when we really don't feel like graciously and humbly submitting to the government, we must and show the world how confident we are in our Savior and hope and pray that the world will ask us why. Paul also says to be obedient. This goes hand in hand with the submission, and it means to willingly comply with an order. This is a good time to pause and acknowledge the fact, I've already alluded to this, but we won't always be able to obey our governing authorities If we are ever ordered to do something contrary to what Scripture commands, we obey Scripture. Acts 5, 28-29 says, And the council and high priests were saying, We strictly charged you, that's Peter, not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. We must obey God rather than man. Luckily for us, thus far in the U.S., there haven't been too many instances where we had to sort through this on a large scale. We have been blessed so far. I think probably the closest thing in our recent history would probably just be COVID-19 and all the conversations that came out of that and some of the restrictions that followed in regards to church. Uh, But we are called to be obedient, right? Not paying taxes is not being obedient. Uh, breaking the speed limit and then telling the police officer that 
you must obey God rather than man, doesn't work. You get the point. Paul tells us also to be ready for every good work. I like the words Paul uses there, ready in every. You're not just stumbling through life, occasionally running into a good work. Paul says you must be ready for every good work, prepared. Be prepared so you don't miss any opportunity. I couldn't help but think of 2 Timothy 2, 4 through 6. Um, you don't have to turn there, but here Paul's talking about, you remember the, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And, and Paul's introducing these three metaphors in that text to illustrate qualities needed for faithful ministry. In verse 4 it says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So there's a lot to be said about these verses, uh, but all three, the soldier, athlete, and farmer, must be focused and single-minded, and all of their trades demand preparation. It's not hard to think through what will happen if any of these fail to prepare or fail to seize an opportunity. And in ministry and life, if, if we aren't ready for every good work, we will miss precious opportunities to shine God's light. We must be ready for every good work. Next, Paul instructs us to speak evil of no one. When I read that, my mind, my mind went to the church and how this can be an issue, gossip and over-critiquing and talking about people behind their back rather than engaging with them. And when it happens in the church, it is very ugly and this is one of those moments where I wish Clay or someone in full-time ministry was teaching this passage because they see firsthand all the time just how insidious gossip and slanderous speech can be in a church. And when the world sees this, it's very detrimental to us. Flip over to James chapter 3. Yeah, look out. I'm about to drop some James. Verses 6 through 12 look what James has to say about the tongue. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Our speech can be dangerous, and our speech is vital. Bottom line, there is nothing more confusing to the world and nothing so worldly than when we use our words for speaking evil of people as Christians. Our testimony is immediately blemished. I heard one pastor talking about this. He, he gave this example. He said, it's like a bride on her wedding day. She has on her beautiful dress and she's walking down the aisle to meet, to meet her husband at the altar and someone steps out and dumps a bucket of mud all over her. 
It's disturbing and unfitting when Christians speak evil. We must be looking to build each other up with words and edify and not tear down. Next, Paul says to avoid quarreling. Avoid quarreling. In 1 Timothy 3.3, Paul uses the same language when describing the qualifications of an elder. He says, don't be quarrelsome. Quarreling is, is the exact opposite of peacemaker that we see in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I know where I work, and, and, and you guys have probably experienced this. There's these little areas where people gather, the little water coolers, if you will, and, and oftentimes the conversations that end up there in, in petty arguments and quarrels. And It's so easy to be sucked into one of these discussions and take a side. And I'm not saying to avoid all conversations and don't take a stand on issues. But I'm saying we're called to be peaceful people. I know over the last few years there have been several occasions my wife and I were invited to have discussions with different folks about various topics um, from BLM protesting to COVID-19 mandates or just challenging theological topics. And where in each instant it was known that the parties involved in, in the conversation didn't see eye to eye on it. Now, were the people that organized those gatherings being quarrelsome? No. Absolutely not. These were healthy and helpful conversations. But the conversations can quickly turn. And it's those, those ad hominem attacks, when you attack someone's character instead of the argument they're presenting, is when we begin to quarrel with one another. Where you see it all over online, just the clickbait post, uh, just the, the crazy, I don't know, su- su- such and such as the Antichrist. You know, oh, okay, and you click on it, it's just a bunch of ad for diet pills. Um, you know what I'm talking about, the clickbait. You know, the clever memes that are just posted to get a rise out of people. And that's quarrelsome. People are spoiling for a fight with that stuff. It's a quarrelsome conversation waiting to happen, and Paul says Christians should not be like that. Next, Paul says to be gentle. Our sixth reminder is to be gentle. This is another area that we can be such witnesses to the world. When the world disagrees or tries to make up after they're wrong, there's this tendency to be unkind and cruel because that person wronged them and they deserve what they got coming, or to hold something over someone's head, right? You wronged me, now you're going to come crawling back to me. The world doesn't want to be gentle. The world wants to give people what they deserve. But the Christian has an opportunity to respond gently. Gentle is one of the fruits of the Spirit. We know in, and in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus calls himself gentle. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And I was thinking through gentle in, in, that, in that verse. I also was thinking about how Jesus overturned temples, or overturned tables in the temples, and how he called the Pharisees snakes and blasphemers. And I thought it doesn't sound gentle. And, and I realized I think our culture has a different understanding of the word gentle than what we see in Scripture. Right? You, you know, you might see someone petting a puppy and you're like, oh, he's so gentle. But I don't think that's a picture we see in Scripture. I think in this case, it's easy to confuse a personality with a character trait. 
Someone who is gentle is not always soft and quiet, but someone who is not self-important and who understands how much they've been forgiven and no matter the wrong done to them can respond in a way that screams God's grace in their life. That's what being gentle is. All right, someone who is gentle is not always soft and quiet, but it is someone who is not self-important and who understands how much they've been forgiven and no matter the wrong done to them, they can respond in a way that speaks to God's grace in their life. Our seventh and last reminder is to show perfect courtesy to all people. And this is just adding on to being gentle. And when Paul says perfect courtesy, I I don't think he's saying, uh, talking about perfection here in the sense of of never getting something wrong, but rather he's presenting a more complete Christ-like image and always looking to humbly build others up Listen to Philippians 2, verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I'm going to read that verse again because I think it just sums up these seven reminders. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Those are seven ways we interact with the world. That's being submissive to the governing authorities, obedient, ready for every good work, speaking evil of no one, avoiding quarreling, being gentle, and showing perfect courtesy to all people. Now, if you struggle with these things like I do, and if this is convicting, um, again, consider the context, not just the context of the Roman ruling authorities, but the context of Titus. You remember in verse, or excuse me, chapter 1, that's the first instruction Paul gives to Titus, is to appoint elders so that they can rebuke and remove false teachers. So think about these seven reminders in light of having to rise up against these evil folks that have moved into these young churches and are, 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 are violating these churches. And Paul's saying we've got to remove them. And then in light of that, also remember, be gentle. Be submissive, be kind, show perfect courtesy, avoid quarreling. How do you remove someone like that and avoid quarreling? So it's challenging, but we have to remember that when these folks are removed from office, some of them may genuinely repent. And in that moment, it would be challenging for the leadership in these church, in these churches in Crete to take these folks in and, and, and show these seven, these seven reminders of these folks, but that's what we're called to do. And next week, starting in verse 3 of chapter 3, we'll see the motivation behind all of this, the, the why. All right, so I, I want to close by just reading the next several verses. Verse 3, 4, so in light of everything we just talked about, the reminders, because of those, 4, we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God 
may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your text. And it's so challenging at times. We get lost in the vortex of the world's thinking. And then we read a passage like this, and you pull us right back home, Lord. And we thank you for that this morning. Lord, I just want to pray, too, for Pastor Farrell now and Rich as they teach today. Go with, go with us today, Lord, as, as we try and serve you in light of these seven reminders. In your name I pray. Amen.